Hello, and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. This is episode 75 of the History Voyager. Before we get into it, I thought I'd tell you that I'm enjoying these interviews very much because they're helping me understand, I guess, the way of the world in 2020 and beyond. This was a very fascinating conversation with a fellow who goes by the name of King Williams. I'm going to put his things in the description. It was a very, very interesting conversation about essentially African Americans and American democracy, as well as other things we talked about. I guess you'd say other hardships going on or that have gone on with the African American culture. As you can tell, we've had a little bit of a history with each other. I interviewed him in the past. And also, we went to college together. Well, sort of at the same time, at the same place. And we live kind of in the same town, and we talked a little bit about that. And it was kind of interesting in in this time of talking to folks all over the world to talk to somebody who was local. Anyway, with that in mind, I'd like to tell you to check out episodes 72 of the History Voyager and 69. These, of course, have to do with the situation in Venezuela, and I figure it's the least I can do to raise awareness about the situation in Venezuela. All right, with that in mind, I'm having a good day, and I hope you are too. I'll see you later. Bye-bye. This call is now being recorded. Hello, my name is Benjamin Kitchings, and you're listening to History Voyager. This is King Williams, and he is going to talk to me about, well, why don't you just go ahead and tell everybody why I wanted to talk to you so bad. <laughs> that's a that's a way to put that. Um, I would say that we're going to be talking about specifically, do, do I really, do you really want me to say it? Or Yeah, why not? Okay. So you really want to talk to a black guy uh, today, but more specifically, you wanted to talk a lot. Um, today's thing, is, it's really about, I want to, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this, because like, I don't know who your listeners are, so I don't want to. African Americans and democracy. One way to go. Right. I, I was, was going to say like, a <laughs> perfect, more perfect union, but okay, that works too. And and you're not and just to be clear, you are not just some random black person. I, no, I no, kinda no. am. I'm just a local guy. So am I, but the difference is you're all right, let's okay. Talk to me about earlier we had meandered on to the New Deal and African Americans. And I think yeah. that's a good jumping off point. I mean, I could be mistaken there. No, but no I think it is. Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah, we can definitely talk about the New Deal. I'm actually more interested in Sam Prager as well, but uh, but yeah, so we can talk about the New Deal African Americans. So I think it kind of gets into what you wanted to talk about. So, um, yeah. So all right, New Deal. Uh, what people, gosh. I need to be on a timer for a second. Talk all day about this. 
Um, the most important thing you should know is that the New Deal, in a lot of ways, is the most progressive thing, arguably, in the history of the United States outside of maybe the abolishment of slavery. And I say that as full stop. Um, and I want to be clear, progressive also doesn't mean liberal. In this case, progressive doesn't mean Democrat. And I think that that's very important as to what we're going to talk about next in regards to the New Deal. Um, but they're progressive, progressive in the sense that they push society forward um, they do open up new opportunities, and they are a fundamental shift in a new direction that is not regressive, which is what most conservatism is in the United States, which is, by definition, you're conserving. Um, so the New Deal, and one of the things that people should know about New Deal African-Americans is two things. One, uh, the New Deal, for the most part, didn't really do much for African-Americans in the United States. The second thing is that what the New Deal did do um, fundamentally changed African-Americans' relationship to the Democratic Party. Um, and so those two things, we can start, I'll stop right there and then let me, let me know if this is what you want to, where you want to go or, or. No, that's, this is okay. exactly. I mean, one of the things I was fascinated by, what, well, when you said it, cause I didn't know, I mean, I might have learned this, but I had to bust it out of RAM, so to say, that, African Americans were not eligible for the New Deal. And for right. a lot of rural white Southerners, the New Deal essentially was not just to make them right, so to speak. It was to, it was their entry point into the modern economy period paragraph. Because, like, before that, they were still recovering from the Civil War. You see, right. you know what I'm saying? Like, and so the African Americans in the South didn't actually get that entry point into what you would, what you might want to say is the modern industrial economy that, that we had after that. Yeah, I think that that's something that is, it's something that I think people don't know often enough. And then when people, I see a lot of people use it, they kind of use it cut and paste kind of way. And it really is a disservice to what actually happened and what the history is on that. Um, so cut and paste. What do you mean cut and paste? All right. So both, this is something I think both liberals and conservatives do. So like, I think the Cato Institute a few years ago did something about why the new deal was back as it harmed blacks. And there is some truth to that, right? So on one end, yes, it's like, Every historian will agree the New Deal as a whole actually hurt black people because they weren't allowed to be a part of these programs. So in that end, like you said, not just the industrial economy, we think about the New Deal lasted for, and a lot of ways the New Deal didn't end. I mean, Social Security is still here, right? So, but most of the main programs between 1932 and like, were gone by like 1932, 1972, that 40-year period, essentially two generations of people got benefits and those benefits compounded, right? African-Americans did not get those benefits. The only thing they really got was they got some, they got two things out of that. They got some people, some African-Americans were able to work for the federal government for the first time in a long time. And a lot were able to get government jobs. It's also one of the ways where you see the rise in black people working through the postal service um, and the other just general government level bureaucracy jobs. The other end is um, when it came to that is that those two generations got benefits on benefits that compounded and those compounding benefits disproportionately actually hurt their black constituents. What I mean by that is this, there's two things. 
you want to look at the growth of when the new deal came, they had a lot of um, programs that particularly um, who would be insured, right? So one of what domestic workers, which were 80% of the domestic work in the United States, was done by African-Americans. The other 20% was done by poor whites. Sharecropping and uh, and agricultural work, those were also, for the most part, not covered in the New Deal, either in any of the protections or most of the programs and services. And when those monies did come, they did go to poor whites or African-Americans. And that essentially put both of those demographics back for two generations. Um, and so when you think about what happens when you have two generations of people who don't progress, what is economically like those two groups of people went backwards in terms of uh, net net wealth, uh, net educational attainment, and, and net overall uh, positive growth, right? And mm-hmm. so that is super important. So you'll see a lot of uh, Republicans, white Republicans, a lot more conservatives say, well, the New Deal didn't hurt. It's, it's, a, it's a reason why government is wrong because government purposely segregated against African Americans. The caveat is that in the private markets, they also segregated. And the only reason why even those African-Americans were able to even gain those gains because the few government jobs and government opportunities they were able to get. And then it's doubled down by Truman um, with the desegregation of the armed services. So if you don't have those few, I think less than 10% of all New Deal programs and New Deal jobs went to African-Americans, if that little 10% wasn't even mandated by the federal government, you essentially had African-Americans who would have been of almost near permanent permanent underclass in the history of the U.S., right? And the private markets just weren't doing it because segregation was beneficial to the private market. It kept wages uh, for low-wage white workers artificial because they can always go to either black sharecroppers, black domestic workers who will work for, let's say, if it's not 25 cents a week, 10 cents a week. And it kept, you know, and so the private markets never actually helped white workers, which is something that's super important to know. But it also didn't help African Americans. And so that little bit of government intervention that gave a few African Americans to move up. And that became the impetus for not only them joining the Democratic Party, but also with the New Deal having a more positive reaction to FDR, which is super important because if you look at the number of blacks between 1932 and 1968 with Richard Nixon, um, who are registered Republican, if they could vote at all, right? So this is mostly Northerns, Northerners, or in some cases like the Southern states, like MLK's uh, father, MLK Senior, MLK Junior, they were able to pass all the polls. They were able to pass all of, like, the, the, the various challenges to voting, right? So that was one black family that could vote in Atlanta, but most couldn't. Often than not, they would be registered as Republican always until Richard Nixon, but they would vote on a national ticket for Democratic candidates. And the reason being is because, on average, the Democratic candidate, while they didn't do much for African Americans, the things that they did do was relatively significant. So whether it be Kennedy, LBJ, Truman, FDR, they may have only passed five or six pieces of legislation in their whole presidential careers that may have actually helped them, but every single one of those were so fundamental to either reestablishing their rights that they were supposed to gain after the Civil War or reestablishing their opportunity to either go to school, make money, or be in a desegregated place. So mm. it's super important to know that. And I know that's super long-winded, but I think that your audience needs to know that. I think they do, too. Um, all right. So we are – okay. So if we're going to attack this chronologically, which why not, so we're going to say that's like 1968, 1970. Uh, all right. Now, you said the New Deal, essentially the New Deal programs ended in 72. 
Well, most of them were gone by seven. Some of them stayed, right? But most of them right. were gone or in the process of being defunded by 72 and definitely by 76 in 1980 with Reagan. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, to me as a political theorist, I mean, I kind of see like Ronald Reagan as you go from the, I mean, I think they even, I mean, I think that's a well-established thing is the, the New Deal Democrat ended and the Reagan Democrat was born. And the Reagan Democrat, I mean, I don't know if the Reagan Democrat left yet. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if that's yeah. really gone. I don't know if that's really gone yet. But, um, okay. So let's pretend like I have international listeners because I do. Hey, it's a nice flex, man. It's a nice flex. Well, <laughs> right. But I'm just saying they might not know what a Reagan they probably, well, I don't know if they know what a Reagan Democrat is or not, but I'm, I'm gonna assume they don't. So a Reagan, uh, do you want to say what a Reagan Democrat is or should I? Cause I can do it if you, if you, nah, you should, it's your show. I think people should still get to know. <laughs> okay. Well, a Reagan Democrat is somebody, the conventional wisdom had was until about 1980 or 79 that, uh, Ronald Reagan, um, Essentially, there was a population of white, mainly at that point, northern uh, Union Hall, dues-paying people who typically voted Democrat because, you know, the typical, the idea was at the time that union members voted Democrat because, because of FDR, et cetera, and so on. And Reagan, I guess we'd say in America, upset the apple cart which is he kind of changed the paradigm. And to some degree, the paradigm still hasn't been changed back from that. Um, actually, I was kind of thinking about this today. In some ways, Trump reminds me an awful lot of Reagan, uh, policy-wise, et cetera. I'm actually um, writing on that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the difference is Trump has to deal with uh, a much more, and I don't use diverse, like racially diverse, but diverse in terms of outlets, media. Yeah. Like Trump has to deal with more more media in a way than Reagan does. But it's also a different media. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I know what that, you mean. That, that's for another moment. But okay, so let's, all right. So Reagan, that's a Reagan Democrat. And it was so... It was, he basically transformed the paradigm of even how the establishment, the political establishment period paragraph kind of looked at union members at all. And, um, anyway, so that's, that's what a Reagan Democrat is. And it's funny because you're saying that, I mean, you say that even now, and there's people who call themselves Reagan Democrats that never actually voted Democrat in their life just because they weren't old enough to vote Democrat back then. Right. <laughs> You know. All right. So I'm sorry. Take it away. No, no, no. I like that. I wanted to hear where you were going with that. I wanted to see where, like, where you were going with that one. Yeah. Well, would, would you say that's about right? Uh, yeah, that's a part of the story. Yeah. What's, what's part of it? What's your part? Well, I would say, okay, I think you had something interesting about the Trump part of it, um, which is I think that people don't. So there's a lot of little things about Trump that's very Reagan-like, I think, because of who he is. And this is – it's not really because of who he is. It's how him and his team executed. They kind of took 
I'm going to especially go back to 2016 when Kellyanne Conway is, like, really running the show. That campaign, in a lot of ways, is very similar to Trump's 84 campaign, which is... You mean Reagan's 84 campaign. Yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you for getting me on that one. Uh, Trump's campaign is very similar to that. And what I mean by the 84 campaign is, yes, there is a lot of historical political dog whistling, but if you go back to Reagan's, a lot of his, I'm going to go visit Harlem. I'm going to go visit, you know, these kind of... I'm going to go visit Puerto Ricans in, in Harlem. I'm going to go visit people in the Bronx. I'm going to go visit these uh, depressed black and Latino neighborhoods. You know, because the Latino neighborhoods, they, like, it's very clear. These were, like, people who historically had, well, not in recent memory, had started to vote Democrats, but, like, African Americans, Puerto Ricans, some Mexican communities out west. And what he, it was a lot of sleight of hand in that administration, which is Reagan did a lot of talks, a lot of listening to leaders, a lot of trying to galvanize people. The difference is with the Trump thing is that these people were actual leaders and not necessarily people the Trump administration could just find because they would just either take a dollar or they wanted the attention or they wanted, like, being close enough to the White House, right? Like, Omarosa, the equivalent of Omarosa would not have been talking to Ronald Reagan in 1980, you know what I'm saying? Or, like, the Diamond and Silks would not have been, like, at a Reagan rally in 84. But that's, like, one of the few differences. But a lot of this was I'm going to posture myself as, hey, being for the downtrodden of all types, I'm going to go to these black and Latino neighborhoods where I know I won't get the vote of not even 25%, but if I work hard enough, I can get close to 20%. Um, And Reagan, and so you see a lot of that, but also it proves this other thing, which is, look, he can't be racist because he's engaged with these black leaders in these black neighborhoods or these Latino neighborhoods. And so because he's not, it's actually a way in which, to make the swing voter feel more comfortable in their decision because they were likely leaning to that person anyway. Um, even the dialogue, and I know people talk about, I'm, I'm pretty sure you mentioned this, but like the Make America Great Again really is attributed to Reagan in 84 than it is, like, and Trump like took it to another level in 2016 and now. But it is, uh, it's very much in that vein, which is, I'm going to speak to one audience, and I'm going to speak to another audience, but I'm not really speaking to this audience as much as it is I'm showing my other my, my base of people that, hey, I'm an okay guy and they're swing voters. And so that Kellyanne Conway 2016 campaign, I think, is a, a really a masterclass in both confusion and a throwback to Reagan's 84. Um, and so I think that that's super important when we talk about how I think going forward that's going to be the, the strategy for galvanizing uh, the Republican base because I think we saw the numbers, right? In some cases, Trump pulled about 18% of the black vote, um, black male vote, rather, and about nine percent of the black female vote a lot of that just comes from that i'm going to be loud i'm going to be in these spaces i can't be a bad guy look i'm talking to these people look i have daniel cameron the guy who's handling brianna taylor's case speak at the rnc like i can't be bad right and the super thing that's important about trump's strategy also is that the types of black people that he had speaking on his behalf were people who were regurgitating a lot of the same talking points of their republican counterparts um, you also see this in, like, really with the Bush administration and, like, with the... the with Bush, are you talking about Bush 1 or... I'm Bush sorry, 1, yeah, uh, about that. With Bush, with Bush yeah. 1. Yeah, so, so uh, also, yeah. let's just be clinical here. You're talking about George H.W. Bush and not George W. Bush. Right. Okay, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, it's all good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you see that also then. And so in that second Reagan 84, then the Bush 88 campaigns, you see a lot more engagement with black uh, Republicans, but it's more, again, on that same vein of this is, hey, look, we, we can't be racist. We have two black people at our dinners. We have 
we're going to elect Clarence Thomas. And if you know anything about the history of Clarence Thomas, he selected to replace Thurgood Marshall. And a lot of ways, mm. I want to be clear, uh, we don't want to put the, the current day model of liberal or conservative on somebody like Thurgood Marshall because while those did exist back in the day, like the context was very different, right? And so that's all I want to put. But in a lot of regards, a lot of the things Thurgood Marshall pushed were generally progressive, generally racially forward, more worker-friendly, union-friendly, things that we would typically associate with the modern-day Democratic Party, right? Um, a lot of that was circumvented by the selection of Clarence Thomas, who spent most of his career undoing those things. And then again, uh, with Bush's son, Bush uh, too, selection chief John Roberts, who's white, but like they both have the same thing. Look, we'll engage with black audiences, we'll have talks, we'll go to Black History Month things, but we're gonna re- we're gonna re- regress and re- remove every single civil rights legislation that has existed, every single workers' rights legislation, and every single piece of thing going piece of thing that, that was going forward that was either in the front to con- conservatism or in the front to general white society, and so. That's a lot of people taking some take a breathe on that, but you got to understand, like, with most Republican appointments or a Republican engagements, it's always about having that black person echo the statements and do the work in order to keep their hands clean and saying, hey, we didn't do this because, you know, look, a black person here, and because a black person says or does it, it can't be wrong. They just have to be conservative, and because they have to be conservative, that means they're free-minded or they're not shackled by groupthink. And that's not the case with African-Americans at all. But that's how it plays out. We see that again. I mentioned Daniel Cameron before. That's the exact thing that's happened right now with Breonna Taylor's case with Daniel Cameron. And when we do the data, especially look at what happened in Kentucky, um, the number of black people who turned away from the Republican Party in general, especially over his handling of that, is attributed to that, right? Um, they might have lost a generation of millennials and some Gen Zs who were really passionate about the Breonna Taylor case and see a black man do what he did. It appeases white Republicans and white swing voters, but it really pisses off their black demographic. And that is super important, I think, for your audience to understand the context of, like, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Um, and it's not to say the black people are super enthused by the Democratic Party, but it is important to understand why they vote and move the way they move politically. Okay, yeah, and I wanted to express that for, you know, people in other countries. Um, And also some people down here might not, you know. Who knows what people are walking around with in terms of their head, um, in terms of knowledge in their head. Um, One thing I think Trump has that Reagan didn't actually have was – and I discovered this through um, talking to people about Venezuela, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think Trump has uh, what some Americans would call Latino voters who are very pro-small government, because specifically because of Cuba and because even more of Venezuela, because that's much fresher in somebody's mind. And... I don't know how much you know about Venezuela, and I don't know more than what I was told on my podcast for the most part, but I could, I have all the sympathy in the world now for some, for some people of Venezuelan extraction sitting in Miami or Orlando or wherever, you know, looking at these people saying, I want to have government health care and being like, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yeah. I think, 
Trump was really fortunate that he had people that could had remembered, um, you know, Chavez and and people like that. Um, yeah. So let's okay. So in the eighties, let's talk about African American dem- democracy in the eighties. Um, what are and I guess beyond, if you want to. Um, so, what are some of the barriers to voting that black folks can encounter that maybe a lot of white people might not be aware of? Uh, okay, so the 80s, you didn't have as much. What they, the strategy in the 80s was producing voter apathy because, uh, and even under Reagan, I think this is super important, but even Reagan, and this is, Again, this is a thing about America that I generally do not like. When any other group has to do something that is essentially ascertaining a right from white Americans or on the same level white as Americans, they put stipulations on it. And the reason I say the 80s is more about not even suppressing the vote, it's just producing voter advocacy, like voter doesn't, voting doesn't change anything, is that under Reagan, um, the Voting Rights Act, which should have just been an act that just is permanent, had initially a 20-year sunset on it. So it was passed by, uh, it was passed in the 1960s. Um, but the problem is, like, when you put a sunset on an act, what that means is it can always be overturned in the future. Even now, the Voting Rights Act, um, Section 5, which will later be in 2013, um, was mostly neutered by by the the opinion of Chief Justice John Roberts took away most of those rights, which is why we're even talking about voter suppression now, right? But the 80s is more about, listen, um, you had a lot of big things. Reaganomics, Reagan was uh, cutting off a lot of, like, federal aid to cities. He was cutting a lot of arts programming. He was cutting some of the New Deal programs that he could, um, but beefing up more and cutting uh, overall taxes, right? In his second uh, administration, he cut, like, the federal tax rate again. All this essentially, and he also defunded education. So under Reagan, he produced an environment that white people were already. Hold on, hang on a second. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Um, when you say defund education, now I mean I know what you mean when you say that. Mm-hmm. And when you say that, I'm going to nod. You don't see me nodding and whatever, but I'm I'm nodding. But again, I have listeners that don't know what the phrase defunding education means. Uh, sure. You're talking about uh, the Pell Grants, getting rid of the Pell Grants, and the, which effectively ended up raising the cost of college for you know continually until we at the point now where it's insane, <laughs> right? Yeah. So uh, no, there's two things. Uh, one was he killed. Uh, one, he actually tried um, him and his edu- edu- education secretary in 1986, William Bennett, in '86, believed that the Department of Education could be straight up like removed so he tried to remove that all together in 86 he wasn't successful but like you said he did um put some severe stipulations which really really reduced like pell grant which eventually subsequently would start to produce in the 90s like that first wave of students borrowing excessive amounts of money to go to college right so there's like you know mm-hmm. you do one thing it does lead to another the other thing is reagan to straight up like stop funding to the same levels as his predecessors like K through 12 education. And what that means is typically the federal government will give money to the 50 states to go towards education, right? And so under Reagan, like every single year, like they just 
just generally because of his thing is I'm going to reduce the size of education. I mean, the size of government. That also means I'm just going to stop giving less money to states for for federal. You know, for for cases. I, he stopped giving less money to states. Right. through 12 school in which then states either shut down schools, privatize certain aspects. So that's why you see the boom in like privatized like lunches in schools and like schools stop actually serving nutritious lunches. Like, so there's, it's a ripple effect, right? Um, right. So that's what I mean. So when we talk about defunding, he legitimately did that. Well, and, and there's also something else that I noticed because I've been to college all over the state, right? Uh, a twelfth a twelfth grade education is vastly different in the state of Georgia depending on where you are. Okay. Yeah. Like I don't know where all you've been to school, but I've been to college all over this state and I'm here to tell you that a twelfth grade education coming out of Cobb County or Gwinnett or DeKalb or Fulton or some of that is vastly different from somewhere like uh Eccles or yeah. Chatham. <laughs> Or somewhere like that. And you can actually see it in the product in the classroom, in the college classroom. And, you know, and so, you know, you can actually see it on the ground, so to say. Right. And I guess that comes from the PTA levels. I don't know, uh, school taxes or, I mean, I mean, property taxes or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so that, okay, so. This is also this goes back to this is all right, so the modern conservative move we're gonna say really starts with Barry Goldwater in nineteen sixty four, right? Um uh, that campaign is I would a thousand about, I'm sorry, huh? I would a thousand percent agree with that. Yeah. So <laughs> we wanna okay, so for your listeners, we're gonna start there. And there's a whole lot of history now, but I wanna get to that. But Barry Goldwater essentially did two things that's super important. One, he essentially started the dog whistling strategy of switch from this thing, instead of saying states' rights, say, you know, uh, instead of states' rights now, the thing is like school, you know, states' choice or, or limited choice. School choice or, or school choice. local yeah, control or. Local control. That wasn't yeah. really perfected until Richard Nixon in 68. But then what happens is on a local level in states across the U.S. through the 1970s and 80s, that becomes more refined on the local level. So you have people like Newt Gingrich, who comes out of uh, Metro Atlanta, who, gains, who becomes a national player in the 90s, with a lot of those same talking points. A big portion of that was, and this is super important for your audience to know, we're speaking specifically about Georgia and how this relates also to Ronald Reagan at national level, which is just a general consensus of many white Americans was, we left the cities because of the riots. We left the cities because of the crime, even though they themselves were pulling out in white flight, and that white flight was causing, like, the overall, like, decline in the cities. When whites were leaving, especially after, like, the start of desegregation in most American cities in the mid-1950s through the uh, early 1970s, there is a actual corollary effect to whites literally leaving outside of municipal jurisdictions. Those jurisdictions are then within a few 12 to 24 months, start to see the declines, right? And then yeah. within a, a span of 120 months, which is 10 years, they start to see a lot of, like, increase in crime and things like that. One of the byproducts of that was these things called the tax revolts. And in Atlanta, there's a book on this called White Flight, Atlanta, The Making of Modern Conservatism. There's a, a six or seven other books that are similar on this particular topic. What happens then, 
in Atlanta, in Milwaukee, wherever you are in the United States, as whites left the city, one of the things was saying, many whites were saying, we want to have local control. That Barry Goldwater talking point, local control also meant local tax dollars. And because at that point in time, even still through the 70s, not really, Nixon started to mess with it, but not in a not too much of a deal in his administration. Gerald Ford didn't do really anything, neither did Jimmy Carter. Um, when you went to college still, even in the 1970s, college was relatively affordable because the funds on college were typically covered by both the state and the federal government. And if there was something, let's say you went to Harvard, some school that was super, if there was a, a little bit of financial aid or loans available, you would have to come out of pocket, which is why you see a lot of baby boomers say, well, I only had to pay $5,000 to go to school. It's because 95% of your cost was covered by the federal and the state government. But during that process, what happened was while that was going on the federal level, people were still going to college, right? So people were still going to college, college was still affordable. On the K through 12 level, which is like basically every American child growing up, two things happened that was super important in the, the 1960s to the 1980s. The rise of private education for everyday Americans because prior to really FDR, then prior again to like the 1960s, private school is either one or two things. You either was like in a religious school, which is, you know, we heard of Catholic school and, you know, like Catholic school mm-hmm. and things like that, or you were rich. Like, average person just either didn't go to school or you were in public school. And so what happened was that defunding of education on a local level eventually trickled into lawmakers by the, in the 80s on a national level, which are saying, our tax dollars are being wasted on these inner cities. Our taxes don't need to be with these people who are undeserving education. We've done this in our smaller cities and our smaller towns already, and it's worked out really well. We need to do the same thing in the federal government, reduce the, the amount of government spend, and that government spend needs to stop going towards education because these people won't do anything with it. And that's how that happened. Okay. Let me ask you a question, okay? Because okay. I've noticed this, all right? I've noticed that urban African-American poverty on the ground functionally looks different from white rural poverty. Have you I agree. noticed that? Okay. All right. Have you also noticed that let me see how to say this. Have you have you also noticed that there's an interesting gap, okay? There's like a gap between in how different people think about the virus. Yeah. I mean it shows up it shows up with COVID. Right, it shows up most infamously with COVID, right? But I mean, it can be about a whole lot of things. But let's just stay with COVID for a second. Um, one of the things that I that I've noticed is you might have somebody who they've been to college, but they didn't major in healthcare, and why do they always tend to be white? Right, that's that might actually be a question, but you know, and they they seem to think that this virus is the flu or it's akin to the flu or something, right? And so they're going to go get a steak sandwich or they're going to go get, you know, they're they're going to say they're going to say, well, this isn't real, this this is no way real, and and like it's it's a the media and the Democratic Party are trying to trick me, basically. Right. But yeah. then you have people that they, they either know about this stuff or they went to med, they, they're medical people or, or they're just interested and they read about it on their phone. And so they're, no matter what party they are, they, no, no, this is real and we need to take cover basically. 
I'm wondering if this education situation is actually playing out with COVID. Like, I'm wondering if this is one of the things that that the Republican Party accidentally did was set up like a a cognition gap, if you will. You know uh, I saying? know what you're getting at. I know what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah. What do you say about that? Uh, I think there's a bit to that. So there's a bit of layers to that. Um, I just, it sounds very much like, and it's not all rural white. So there's people here in the city who are just right. I mean, I didn't mean yeah. to say all. I mean, Lord knows, I've got a, I've got a cousin that she's a, she runs, she's a nursing administrator, and she's all about COVID's real, and she's as conservative as the day is long. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, because if you're in the epicenter, it's like a bullet. Like, nobody believes the bullet is real until it's in your direction, right? So, like, people have a very – everyone feels, one, everybody feels they're more invincible than they actually are. And then, two, I think a lot of this is – it is not even just the education system. I think it, what it is is a system of mistrust and authority and trust and comfort. And what I mean by that is, a lot of, like, the anti-COVID stuff is, like, very similar to a lot of anti-vax stuff, which is very similar to a lot of, like, QAnon stuff, which is very similar to a lot of just, like, general weird youtube kind of conspiracy theories that kind of just <laughs> exist, right? Like, they're all in the same spectrum, even though they don't talk about the same thing, but they're in the same spectrum. And the most important thing about that to know is that conspiracy theories provide something I think people don't generally understand, which is they provide comfort in a time of distress. And I think we got to really be aware of that i think a lot of that comfort too comes in just like a lot of like on the rural like this but like you said on the rural side is a lot of rural people because they're just around less people feel more in control of their situation and then when you back that up with somebody you already support like a trump or like a lot of silicon valley like vcs are very much on that train too like COVID's not that serious and if you're around somebody who you feel you, you the people you already seek are saying the same confirmation bias that you already have, it makes you feel more in control. And I think that that's super important to kind of think about. But I do agree with you. Like, it is a real problem. But um, a lot of that has to do with education. And education isn't necessarily that coming from the school system as much as it is. People don't trust authority right now because right now authority in their mind is either a Democrat or it's some – form of like conspiracy theory that's just in the back of their mind working it out right um yeah. and i don't try to like belittle people's conspiracy theories i believe in like nba conspiracy theories all the time so like i don't i'm not against <laughs> i do like i believe michael jordan didn't purposely kept isaiah um, thomas off of the dream team like they had it in the documentary and like jordan was like well it wasn't purposeful then i you know like whatever that's an aside. Are, are you old enough to remember the jordan and this gets way away from what i want to talk to you about in the first place yeah. but are you old enough to remember the Jordan Rules? No, I don't remember that. There was a book called The Jordan Rules that I didn't read, but I certainly heard about. And the book apparently lays out very interesting, I don't know how you'd say it, but very interesting um, suggestions, or not suggestions, but not dicta, like not that this shall happen about how Michael Jordan should be treated by the referees. <laughs> no, but that seems like very LeBron-esque today, so that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, okay. 
and all this is fascinating, but if I recall, my original question to you was, what are some things, what are some barriers to voting that African Americans might have that white people might not be aware of? All right, so... You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, okay. all right, let's go straight to it. All right, a couple barriers. What's wrong right now, 2020? Uh, for the record, uh, some context. One, I am very active politically in things. Two, I have an initiative called Pizza to the Polls, not affiliated with the national one. They don't really deliver here in Georgia like that. Uh, they haven't since 2016. And so I see a lot of this stuff firsthand. I've also helped people who have been turned away from the polls uh, for a various amount of reasons. So I'm going to talk to you from my senior experience, from what the data is showing me, somebody who does research, from what the re- and also somebody who talks to everyday people who directly work with voting, with polling locations, with voter advocacy, with registering to vote to people. So I've talked to somebody who has a broader knowledge and a broader space on this. Here, here we go. For general, the black population in the United States, in particular the state of Georgia, here are some of the access points to voting. The first is just really the number of places where you can go get registered to vote. That's super important. Um, and every state is different. We have 50 states, 50 different rules. Would it, let me let me just can I can I tell you how I registered to vote last time I remember registering to vote? Yeah. Like I remember doing this. Let me just give you an example of how me, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant person, registered to vote. And you see if this dovetails to what you remember. Okay, I moved from Gwinnett to downtown Atlanta. I walked into the Central Library in downtown Atlanta. I said, hi, I'd like to register to vote. She handed me a clipboard and something to, like, something to write on. I handed her, you know, you need your valid ID. I, I know I handed her my driver, my, my driver's license. And then she said, well, you need a bill. And I said, well, I don't have a bill, but I have a Netflix envelope. Will that suffice? Right? And she said, yeah. And so I handed her my Netflix envelope with the movie still inside. And that is how I registered to vote. Damn. <laughs> uh, I remember, I don't remember that experience. I do remember needing a, a insane amount of documentation on, that I'm a real person when I came. I remember that. I don't remember what those documents were. But I do remember having to go to the DMV. And this is before, like, now Georgia does this thing where you get your driver's license and you can also get – they make it hard to get a driver's license. That's a whole that's a whole other thing. But I remember going, having, like, birth certificates, having, like, an unbelievable amount of personal information just to get a driver's license and then also being like, all right, you need to also get your voter registration card. So I don't know okay. what – I remember that, though. Okay, now this wasn't when I was 18. This was when I was, it was, uh, it was for the 2000 and let me think. Okay, I moved into the city in 2005. My mama taught me to vote like clockwork, so it would have been about 2006. <laughs> you know, so, but I had voted before. This wasn't the initial time I'd ever voted, right? This was the, just I was moving my registration from Gwinnett to, to Fulton. Okay, so. So, okay, I'm sorry. I, that was just my experience that I can remember. Now, yeah, how does that Mine's about the same time as you. I just don't remember what I brought to me. I just And I remember having to go 
to, I think I ended up going to the DMV and, like, for some reason, like, the county office or some shit. I don't honestly remember. It, I just remember it being a thing. Huh. So, I couldn't even remember. I just know. But since I voted, I voted in every election except for, there was a runoff for a runoff back in, back in August of this year. And then the Kwanzaa Hall one, I just didn't vote for, like, that runoff this year. Like, the one that just happened, like, a month ago. I didn't vote okay. for that one. So, every, but those two elections I voted in. Period. Um, but I want uh, one election. I've only not voted twice. One election was in a driving rainstorm, and I knew the the SOB was going to win anyway. And the other time was because literally I was on the phone with the police. <laughs> yeah, that'd be important. So <laughs> you know, but literally I voted every other time. Just saying. So go ahead. Okay. Um, so a couple things. One, um, I would say, all right, so voting this. One is just getting, like, all right, so in the state of Georgia, the number of places where you can actually get, like, what me and Ben were talking about, just of just, like, the whole ordeal of physically bringing your documentation, right? The state of Georgia under our current governor, Brian Kemp, um, has, closed around 200 or so polling locations, that's place where you actually vote. But they also had closed down and essentially, and Alabama was like substantially worse than Georgia is. They closed down the number of places that you could go to to even do it, essentially like closing off, especially if you're, once you leave Atlanta, it becomes a very different place. But, and so essentially what happened was you either had to go to the DMV, which many of the DMVs across the state were being closed in black areas, right? So the local driver, um, driver motor vehicle services in Georgia call it DDS, like Department of Driver Services, but the same place. Most of those were closed and they became centralized. And so Republicans say, well, we centralized it. And so it made it easier. It made it more efficient. We reduced government. But in reality, what happened was most of like your rural black places now, the place, the DMV or, or I'm sorry, the Department of Driver Services or like these, like they used to be placed like your library or um, your county office, you essentially got it shut down to one location. And then just the process of going there, you had to have, like we talked before, so many verifying documents that it becomes an issue, right? The other thing is this is something that is improportionately discriminatory, but it's also a part of the process. So let's say, you know, I have a cousin. Um, I'm not going to use her real name, but this is a, a interpolation of her real name. Her her name is Shalanda, um, right? And so Shalanda is like a pretty – it's a very black name, right? So when she goes to the place, she has all her documentation. She goes to Shalanda. All the things go well. If that woman keys in Shalanden on her ID, like, you know, drive like oh. So what happens is, like, this is, right. like, you know, two people who had it. So, like, they put Shalanden uh, instead of Shalanda. You know, A, they just added the N at the end, right? You know, and that happens. Um, when oh. When she tries to, and like, and then she says at the DMV, okay, I would like to use these documents to also be uh, my process of register vote. DMV does that, boom. So she thinks she's fine. She goes to the to the actual. This actually really did happen with somebody I know, and I was there when it happened. She shows up at the, um, the you know her polling place on election day. They say, oh, you know, we have a Shalon Den, but not Shalon Duff. Same address, same name. Same everything, right? Well, I'm sorry, we can't accept your vote because we have a Shalon Den, and you need to go back to the DMV. So now she's got to go back to the DMV, do that entire paperwork process again for something the DMV purposely 
or mistakenly put in incorrectly. All right. And so actually, or this is another case. Um, so that's one. Those are two aspects. One is just closing up most of the, the, the available registration stations and especially the rural Georgia. And the problem was when they closed out most of the ones in the black ones in rural Georgia, most rural white Georgians also live near rural black Georgians. So it wasn't like you just close off one. You also close off another demographic of people as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so this also closed up a, a, a group of, like, people who don't vote right now, but they will, which is, like, a lot of our Latino farm workers who live in a lot of ways more remote than even those two groups of people because they're working either at these farms or these factories and they're out and about in Georgia that are really mm-hmm. far away. And while they don't vote, their kids are starting to come of age. We, we're starting to see this now with this uh, – the Stacey Abrams election, this Biden election, like, okay, that growing mm. group of, like, Latino voters starting to vote, some are, and it's, like, 50-50. It's not like, it's not like some states where it's, like, 70-30, whatever. It's, like, 50-50. Half of them are going to go Democrat, half of them are going to go Republican. That would probably stay the same. So what's yeah. happening is those kids now, they have a whole other thing where either they, they themselves might be legal U.S. citizens if they were born here, or they might, but their brother and sister are not. And so then that becomes another issue where if they go get registered to vote, what that means is they're in the system. When then well, they're already in the system already for like if they go to yeah. school. But what happens is they may not want to alert who else lives with them, right, on that permanent address. So now they don't vote or they don't get registered to vote or they don't get an ID or a driver's license because they don't want to essentially put their loved ones at risk. So that's another thing where we don't talk about, but that is something that is happening in real time with like some of these like Latino kids are between eighteen and twenty five now who are growing up. Yeah. And so that becomes one issue. And that's And also there's a story that I know or that I heard or somewhere that there was that there there's a whole population of, of um Latino people, right? Who are roaming the world believing that they're legal immigrants. And actually it was their mother their mom or whoever lied to them or made them feel better or whatever. And you go to find out you're not. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, there's that's a whole not, population of that. That's going to keep continuing. Um, I think that mm-hmm. Georgia is going to, because we have so many people who work in that space, you know, like you've grown mm-hmm. up here since, you know, MSL, we moved here when you were two from, you know, Mexico or Honduras or something. You assume that, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a legal citizen. I grew up here. And the crazy thing is, like, you might actually be able to, you know, you might be able to get a job. You might, so you just assume that, okay, I got a job I'm working in a real place. So if I'm working at McDonald's, I obviously am a U.S. citizen, right? And then you go to get registered to vote and say, no, 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 that's not it. And so that's right. one issue. Um, the other issue is, like, for if you're trying to get, this is something that affects all Georgians, but especially affects women and people who have difficult names. Like I told you, my cousin is Shalanda. Um, so Shalanda, she, she gets, this is something I'm using Shalanda in replace of a, another woman who I don't want to air her name out, but this really did happen. So she has a name that is not a U.S. name. I will say that. Right. She, so like, it's not a not a normal name. It's not a name that you yeah, run across. It's every not day. like yeah. It's not like yeah. It's not right. Smith. It's okay. not Johnson. Or that. So her name, okay. her first and last name are both not. You can just her first name is closer to American. Let's say her name is like. It's a very, like, if, if you didn't know her, you assume her first name, she's a white girl, right, based on the name. Because it's like, oh, what's her, you know, her first name is, uh, you know, um, Apple. You know, so Apple's like a very, like, white girl name. You know what I'm saying? It's just, like, very, like, white girl. Okay, Apple's <laughs> a little, right, she's like, okay, 
um, Apple, and then, you know, her last name is a very difficult Spanish last name. And you're just like, okay, this is clearly not – this person may be married to, you know, somebody who's Latino. You just – you have different assumptions now. Um, it has a lot – it has syllables that are – and words that just aren't the same. So you see Apple show up, and like Apple – right? Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the issues. So what happens is, like I said before, my cousin Shalanda, the name just gets inputted wrong. Or when she brings her – um, she might bring something like her birth certificate and it's spelled one way, but on like her school ID or her bill, it's spelled another way, right? And so then, okay, which one is the correct one? So you automatically assume the birth, you know, the birth certificate is correct, but then it's like if the birth certificate is correct, then why are all your bills spelled differently, right? And she's like, you know, sometimes people just don't get it right. Well, you know, the answer, so, I, I can answer that question directly. Yeah. <laughs> Because I, I had this problem. Um, I have a last name that some people in this country from a certain region of the country don't say correctly, right? So I got into a situation where I don't even remember what kind of product it was. But I remember there was a nightmare because the person that keyed in my last name keyed it in phonetically, at least in their mouth, out of their mouth. And not what I was saying, right? Yeah. And so that was a whole problem just for me, but that was only just a bill, right? It wasn't anything as vital as voting. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so, I mean, Lord. (laughs) Right. And so here's the other thing. The Apple's getting married, right? You get married to a white guy. Um, Apple's. White guy's name, again, I'm not going to use his real last name. We'll say his name is Smith, John Smith. So then her name goes from Apple blank dash Smith. Here's the problem for that one. So Apple, like I said, Apple already had this issue with her last name being a very not American last name, right? So we can just tell. So it it gets messed up all the time. Apple's now getting married to John Smith. John's name, it's pretty straightforward. Okay, so when she goes to get registered, what happens is now – this and this is super petty, but it did happen. This is how some a lot of women are getting knocked off the rolls, which is they finally get Apple's name right. She gets it straight, so but she may have missed out on that electoral cycle to get it straight. So Apple's last name is straight, but now she gets married. So it's now Apple confusing name dash Smith. Here's the some places were having this issue. This whatever my my buddy of mine, she got married. She wanted to hyphenate the name. The person who keyed it in hyphenated the name. Right, so she okay, cool. She she thinks it's fine. When she goes to the voter rolls, it's like no, 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 no. Because of your last name, it has to be like this thing called exact match. There's not a dash on our voter roll, even though on your oh. So now it's like Apple confusing last name Smith on this, and so they they like we don't know if this is a middle name, we don't know if this is a married name. She's like, no, you can see my ID. It's just Apple blank dash Smith. They're like, well, on the voting record, it says Apple blank Smith. So that is petty. Know. Yeah, so it's like, and so a lot of women are getting that too. Like in the case of uh, Apple, that's what's happening yeah. to her. So like that's and that, and so for black women in particular, a lot of our names are like Shalanda's, or they have a lot of phonetics to them, like a lot of Latino names and some like Korean mm-hmm. names. They have a lot of phonetics to them, and so a lot of our women are just being kicked off or having to go through that cycle. In the case of Apple, she still hasn't gotten her information. She missed this entire electoral cycle. Like, well, let me. All of it. Let me be, quote, that white guy and just, Uh okay, 
So what I always do and what everybody in my house does is we go on the Internet, and right there, that's some people don't have the Internet, but we go on the Internet at the county and we make sure how our name is, like whether it's this or that or whatever. Because you, you're right. You actually do have to say, like, your whole name. So I have to put, like, my whole name, my middle initial, and then my name. Right? I can't, you know what I'm saying? That's what I have to do. But I have yeah. to remember that. So I'm just saying, like, if you have Internet access, you actually can go to your county election board and see how, how you are at the election board. Just saying. You know? Yeah. No, you so. okay. Like, like I said, I'm saying this too. This is somebody who's working with Apple. I'm still working on her on this one. So there's like a real situation going on. So it's been a thing. Um, she is an American citizen. Her name is definitely not American. Um, and so she's going through that issue now. So that is a real thing. Yeah. Hmm. What about, um, so when you register to vote, um, I guess it would help to remember how how exactly, like, you put your name down, right? Because, I mean, they're not going to work. It's not Amazon. They're not going to work with you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, so, hmm. All right. Are there other access points to voting you want to bring up? Yeah, or other, other access points. So this is something else that happened. Um, First-time voters. So this actually happened in 2018. I was with my godbrother. Um, he was going to vote for Stacey Abrams. It was the first time ever. Um, it was the first time voting. Dave just straight up told him since we never seen you in our system before. He was in high like high school. This was like his first first time. He didn't register for anything. He didn't have a job in high school. He was focused on school, so he really just did not exist for the most part. Um, he was almost turned away because they felt he couldn't have been a real person because he has no prior anything. Like, no prior. He just did not exist. He was just a kid, a student, never had a job. He, he goes to college now. He has on full scholarship. He's, like, a smart. That was his job, going to school. Um, so that's one end. The other end is just simply, like, um, the thing I do with Pizza the Polls a lot is when I go to these places, uh, the number of either machines that are ready to go when they show up. Um, so a lot of times, like, a lot of these voting locations, that happened in 2018, that happened in 2016. There were essentially, if there are about 4,000 people who could be at a voting location, they only have maybe five or ten machines. Those five or ten machines produce long wait times. This is before COVID. COVID just made it worse. Um, and so if you have five or ten machines, it takes the average person about three minutes to vote. You know, they read, they go through things, they, they take, you know, in and out. That could be amplified if you have a line of 500 people. Just think about it's 1,500 minutes now, and then you can just multiply that really fast on how that works. And so that became a deterrent because uh, when I was doing a piece of the polls, like there was a place on the north side of Atlanta. This is in Atlanta, not like Alfred, like in Atlanta. Um, I would be going to a place like um, South um, South Atlanta near the stadium. Um, I would then be going to some spots yeah. over in East Atlanta. Um, those places would have sometimes anywhere from 30 minutes to two-hour wait time. And then the further north I went, I would go to Buckhead. Those places may have had 30-minute wait time, but they had 20 25 machines. Places in East Atlanta, South Atlanta may have had 10 to 15 machines, but they had the same number of people as the precincts. Um, yeah. So that, producing those wait times, produce people who don't want to show up now because they got other stuff to do. Um, the other impairment to voting is just simply uh, people don't feel as if, like, their absentee ballot when they request it either came in. That's something I deal with often. The people hit me up like, hey, man, 
I request my absentee ballot. It never came in. What do I do? And another thing that also happened to my brother, who is obviously black, um, he voted in the general and the primary this year. He voted this year early voting. He went to the place he physically went in. He requested to get an absentee ballot because he had to work and he knew he couldn't take off early to go out early vote. He went to go to the little My Voter page um, to go do things. He sees his information there. Okay, cool. My Voter page is the, the state's place to quickly verify that you're in the system. He sees that. Okay, he's cool. He then goes to the part, the state has another website where you go request your absentee ballot. He clicks on it. He tries to go through it and they say, okay, no, we're sorry, you're not registered in the system to even get this. So he looks again. He looks at the My Voter page. Here, I'm clearly here. I voted last month. He looks at this page and and I didn't realize until I posted about my brother, but there are dozens of other people who, and I say dozens, and this is people talking to me directly who are, wow. hey, I did the same thing. I can't go vote. Or I voted last month. It's saying now that I try to request an absentee ballot. I'm not in the system. Can I still vote? And you had until December 7th to rectify the situation. Most people didn't, right? So they just didn't know. And so it becomes these little things that's an impediment. And now that uh, the current Secretary of State, Brian, um, Brad Raffensperger, is entering a new program in which they have this thing called the same exact max program for names. They're going to start doing it with signatures. So the number of people who turn in their absentee ballots, like um, like my brother and things like that. I eventually had to get my brother's absentee ballot. I had to raise some hell about that. Like, you just don't fuck with my brother. But I got his stuff. Um they are now instituting this new thing where they can start throwing out new ballots. So let's say you live in rural Georgia in a place like, let's say you live 45 minutes outside of Cordell, Georgia, which is like very south Georgia. Very, that's already far, but being outside of that is even further. You're like almost from That's almost the Florida line, I think. Right. Yeah, so you're super far away. Yeah. So let's say you're in Cordell. You, you need to ask about just because it's so far away to even go in person to vote. What they're doing now is let's say you just find a den, right? And like, the, let's say you were just rushing, you just, you know, scribble Ben, right? And then you come back, um, you send it off, and they say, hey, Ben, uh, you look online, you find out that your vote's not counted because your signature now doesn't look the same as it did before. It has to be an exact match. So wait, so people, are, uh, hang on, yeah. just bear with me. Are you saying, like, okay, if I sign Ben Kitchings, right? Yeah. They're going to look at that, which, okay, but you're, are you saying, like, if I sign, I have to sign the way I sign my name, like the exact way I sign my name, the way yeah. I make the J and Benjamin, the way, <laughs> yeah. like that. I mean, yeah, that's because exactly what that, what's weird is like I know this. They've shown that signatures change over time. This is true. Like, the, so then it becomes really it can become really subjective, like super subjective, right? Yeah, and there. this is something that Brian Kemp has been pressuring Brad Raffensperger to do, and he says he's starting this now for this election, and it's going to be fully in place by 2022, which conveniently enough is his uh, runoff, I mean, his uh, challenge against Stacey Abrams. Which, yeah. Okay, whatever. Um, and so what that means is, like you said, like people's signatures change, or my signature definitely change over time, right? Um, it's another, and they're going to basically verify about one um, how you sign it versus, like I said before, like how you know how your ID when you get your uh, either ID or driver's license. They're going to compare it to how it's signed, essentially on your driver's license. Which for some people, I got my driver's license at 17, 
You know what I'm saying? That was like 15 years ago. I'm not going to have the same signature as a as a teenager that was an adult male, right? Um, so well, the other, like the other thing I think that might end up doing is not even not even privileging. I mean, it might accidentally end up privileging transplants because think about it. You're right. I mean, the last time I signed for a, an ID was, I mean, I'm a little older than you, but I mean, that was a long time ago. And I make my J differently from how I made it when I was 15 or whatever. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's just like, Jesus. it's so, it's, it's clearly like you're clearly just doing this now to like keep either the vote down or toss out votes that you don't. Exactly. You don't and it's just I, like, okay, look, it's one, just campaign and win a, a fair election. Like that's all you got to do. Like it, it shouldn't be that hard, but that's where we are. But, but now here's the thing, though. I mean, Georgia is perversely fascinating to me. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Metro Atlanta economically, socially, culturally is essentially on par with Connecticut. But, I believe it. But um, rural Georgia is essentially, I think, if it's not on par with Mississippi. I would say like Alabama or something like that. I was going to say it's closer to that. When I saw it last, which I'm dating myself, but when I saw it last, it was lower than Alabama. That would surprise me, though. And that's, yeah. that's, this is something that honestly does frustrate me, which is, and this is, I'm frustrated with the Republican Party about this for this very reason, which is, as much as you want to suppress, like, black voters, you end up hurting with the people who really believe in your party the most, which is a lot, oftentimes, rural and small-town white Republicans in places that often are like 80, 90, even 100% white, right? And so yeah. when you don't fund education or you limit the access to vote, you're entrenching power amongst a base of people who need you to represent the most for them. And I don't mean like I'm going to stand up for equal rights. I'm going to stand up against gay rights. I'm going to stand up for the Second Amendment. That really is not going to change their life that much. You know what I'm saying? Like a gay couple getting married is not going to affect rural Georgia. Um, a well, the, the people they end up empowering more than that is they end up yeah. empowering like the white suburbanite, or at least the like the African American suburbanite or the Korean suburbanite or whoever, right? But somebody affluent enough to a have an internet connection, b go online and see how exactly you put your name down, c you know what I'm saying? Yada da 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 da, right? I mean, yeah. just saying. Yeah, I mean, like, because I think of this, we don't think about this enough, but this is a, a broader kind of conversation, Ben, and I want to be clear. We don't think about the U.S. going forward. That day of 1950, that day of March 1st, 2020, this year, is not coming back, right? We're not going back to the, the 50s, or we're not going back to whatever the 2010s were before COVID-19. And what what I, is, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, and what that means is for our people, like, the most important thing as Americans is we need to make sure that all of our people are educated and educated properly because the next the next economy is going to be one that's remote. It's going to be one that is highly mobile. And I don't mean just in terms of, like, a phone or working from home. What I mean is you live in South Georgia. You get a job working six months in Mississippi. You get another job working three years in Mexico. There's another job two months working in in Minnesota, another four years working in Canada, like the future of 
business and the future of jobs is people who are educated and who are able to move around quickly. If we are going to make sure our state is competitive, it is most important that all people are educated and educated, not just in, like, people say keep saying trades, trades, trades. Trades are important. I'm not going to ever knock a trade, right? My dad's a trade, and I'm never going to knock that. Um, my brother works in a trade. I'm not knocking it. What I'm saying is education means we have a baseline of general education on our K-12 level that includes trades, but also a baseline of, like, hey, anybody who is in Georgia should be able to have the same economic access because now the access points are about yeah. to flat. Or what? Yeah. People who already have access will win often than not. What's amazing to me doing this podcast and doing season two, where I'm talking to folks all over the world. I mean, you're you're local. You and you and I are in the same city. It's yeah. it's raining at my house. It's probably raining at your house. You know. You know raining. what I'm saying? I mean, but I, I have to keep up with what time it is in Singapore. I can't. I have to keep up with what time it is in Caracas, you know. And what's amazing to me, what I don't think our our leaders, be they Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Socialists, whatever, what I don't think they understand is that you can have somebody who's super well-educated, who's ready to go to work, who's ready to work for an American company, and they can live in Calgary, and they can live in, in Caracas, and they can... They can live in Singapore, and they can sleep. You were talking about being mobile, like going here and there for six months. This is what I think is going to be. I think you're going to be working for those places, but I don't think you're going to leave your bedroom. You know what I'm saying? I'm thinking your bedroom is going to stay in Singapore or wherever, wherever your bedroom is. That is actually a really good point. (laughs) Um, And then what does that mean? Okay, now put that in perspective, too. Um, so there's a couple things that's about that too important, and this relates to this is on the side that I didn't think we were going to go to, but it's important. So there's this ongoing thing talking about Silicon Valley exodus, right, from uh, the San Francisco Bay Area to other places, notably Austin, Los Angeles, um, Salt Lake City, Miami, Florida, right? Um, the mayor of Miami follows me on Twitter now, tweeting some stuff about that, and I bring that up because there are two things that are important about that. One, in reality, yes, there are people and businesses particularly um, those are financial-based or bench, like a lot of venture, venture capital, a lot of tech, a lot of software-based jobs, um, a lot of remote, you know, video-based jobs are moving or, like, to do what you're saying, are also, um, you know, operating from their home in other markets. What that does in particular, it does two things. It has to make your local municipality very competitive to retain those people. Like, so let's say, Ben, you live outside of Cordell, Georgia, but you make 200000 a year, but, like, let's say, your quality of life is not that great, and you want to move back to Atlanta. What that does is if your quality of life is not great, well, your kids, the schools around there aren't great. There's no real place to grow. There's no place like just to go out and have a bite to eat, hang out on a Saturday night. You leave. Right. Tax dollars leave. And so instead of what we've seen on a major level with, like, under Reagan and all these things with, like, either defunding or, or in the 1960s, 70s, when, like, those companies left Detroit, you're going to see that with individual high net worth, people who are now going to start moving from place to place and having that same level of economic impact. Where Well, I, I mean, I've got something like that in my own life. I mean, I've got a – I mean, go ahead, and then I've got a story. No, no, I, I, I want to hear what you're going with that. So I, I, know, a, I know a couple. I'm, I'm going to leave their name out of it and where they live, blah, 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 right? I know a couple. Um, they're, they're basically, for the purpose of this conversation, our age. Right, mm-hmm. they've they've won. 
they're they're the winners. Okay, they yeah. they've done well for themselves. That was on the back of their parents. Blah 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 blah. Okay, they're nice people. Don't get don't get me wrong. All right. The the man of the house took his kid to uh to to a store to get him out of the house to get the kid out of the house. And this child, this literal almost toddler, pointed out that daddy, you're spending more money on cable than this refrigerator costs, right? So this causes him to cut the cord, right? Okay. So in doing that, he realizes that his internet is not hardly fast enough to have two big screen TVs in the house. And he says, he says, Ben, I, when I bought this house, I never imagined I had to care about the internet speed in my nice <laughs> neighborhood. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like I don't even have enough internet speed to, to watch television twice. <laughs> so it, it, it's not just the, the, the average folks or the poor, it's everybody has waken up to the idea that, oh, we need fast internet because that next job might be in Singapore. <laughs> you know, yeah. just saying. Like, just saying, yeah. Uh, I think, and the reason I get into that is like, how does it affect rural Georgia is because like, let's say one thing about the Zoom era of COVID right now and kids going to school is we've seen the effects of places that have not just like quality internet, but places that have quality spots for people to do remote learning, right? So there's some people um, back in Silicon Valley, where this hurts a lot of people, but a lot of Silicon Valley, like, you know, VCs, people, really, really millions, billions of dollars. <laughs> Sorry. Um, high net worth people were like, we're going to, we're not going to take our kids to school, I'm, obviously, right? Uh, we're not super enthused about remote learning, but what they started doing is things like teacher pods, where they would hire a teacher from the school system, pay her, like, let's say she was making, 40 in the bay to pay or 80, but that teacher now is only responsible for teaching like seven or eight kids that whole year, all the subjects. Um, and then that became like their school. So what, what I'm thinking is like, okay, so that level of kids, like, you know, your dad's a VC. Um, the reason I bring this up is because a Silicon Valley investor named Jason Calacanis who was talking about this over the summer where he was like, I'm not sending my kids to, like, school out there. And this is some of the best public schools in America, mind. This is not, like, some lean-on-me, like, dangerous mind. This is, like, these schools are basically as good as, like, some, like, two-year colleges, right? Really okay. excellent public schools. So like, they're not awful. But even he's like, all right, I don't feel good about COVID. I'm not sending my kids to school. I don't feel good about my kid doing learning. Okay, cool. Let me find three teachers, pay them. You know, like, you find three teachers. That's $240,000, one. That's a lot of money, right, period. Mm. Um, but then he gets some of his other people in the Silicon Valley space who also have kids. They pitch in. They, they hire these teachers. They hire the chefs to do the meals. And these kids legitimately are getting educated in just a smaller setting that even other kids whose parents are making fifty to $100,000 a year at Google and Facebook aren't getting. Those kids are still going to school on Zoom. So I was just affecting I was thinking, like, okay, so how does that ripple affect people who don't even live in that part you know, they live in the same, let's say, like 10 minutes outside of San Francisco. How is their Internet speed? How much are they learning? Then they live 10 minutes outside of that person, outside of Richmond, California. How are they learning now? And I think we're going to start seeing an educational divide even here in Georgia where, like, and, it, it, 
and add to, and add to that. Okay, now add this complicating factor to that. You've got in Canada. Okay, you've got the Canadian. I forget the province, but there's a province. There at least one province in Canada has decided we're going to put the fastest internet we can. <laughs> so some kid out living on a grain farm can have you know can have a real good education compared to some kid in Toronto. Okay, yeah. you've got these countries that are that are getting with it, <laughs> that are figuring this out, and, and we're not. You know, well, we can. Here's the thing: we can, but the thing is, like most of our internet. This is one of the parts where I do think a lot of. If you are so, this is where I think the free market argument is kind of bullshit. Which is, a lot of these people are like free market events where the free market will take care of itself. The free market is not going to take care of itself because to to service rural Georgia, once you leave Macon, Georgia. Or like it's just it economically it's just not feasible to run quality internet. It's just not like here. not even not even rural Georgia. I'm talking about like up in you know high socioeconomic counties that are sparsely populated. It's expensive to run fire you know to run lickety split two gig up two gig down internet. Right? That's expensive yeah. to run. Yeah, that's you know? the thing. I think that's the one thing about free market that people got to say is sometimes a free market requires just that of the market. So if you live outside of Forsyth County, but yeah, you and your wife make four hundred twenty thousand dollars a year, and you still can't, you can't, you really don't think it's as expensive to hire a private instructor because um, that's expensive, or the internet's not great. Like you're still, you're now sucked into the part of the free market system that you don't like, which is yeah, you make a lot of money. Yeah. It's just not like customers where you live, and those customers won't be there for a long time if they ever show up, and so. I think that that's what we're going to be looking at. And I don't want rural George to fall behind. So this is where I do think this is – I'm going to be clear about this. This is very expensive, what I'm about to say next, but it is very important to know. I think for the low-hanging fruit for not only the Biden administration and the administration after that, as well as local governments here, is how do we start subsidizing education for trade with the purpose of building up our infrastructure for the 21st century? What that means is, Building high, heavily investing in two things: light rail, heavy rail. That's one part of it. The other part is just the general digital needs of the future. So that's going to be really, really large bandwidth, really large broadband, um, really large servers, really large electrical grids to handle these future servers. Uh, and we don't think about it too. How do we source and recycle water needed to maintain these servers as more and more people start to get on this? Um, I think that that is the low-hanging fruit. If we're going to address it, I think that that is super important. If we're going to start servicing other parts of Georgia, I want to be clear, it is very expensive. The private market is already pretty much been yeah. clear about this. Like, they're not going to do this because there's not enough demand, and it probably won't be to even justify the cost. But, well, I've, I've always wondered about, because, you know, all these all these Republican politicians always gripe about how, you know, my what was the one guy who said, my own kids don't vote Republican? Um, there was know. one That's prominent Republican right. politician in Georgia. I don't, like, I don't know who that is, but that's not a flex. But I don't remember his name, but he he was saying my own kids don't vote Republican. But Well, yeah. But my my thing is, the Republican Party in this state has always been saying, as long as I can remember, has been saying you need to get people around quote real Georgians unquote. Yeah. Well, the way to do that, honestly, is to bring high-speed internet out to the rural areas. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. 
Because if you're somebody who is used to Roswell Internet, you're not going to move to Macon. No. You know? No, anyway, King. All. Anyway, King, uh, it was a pleasure, and thank you for doing this. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I, I hope I answered your question. I feel like I didn't answer any of them this time, but, you know, I apologize. <laughs> oh, you did. You you answered my question about um, blacks and, and democracy. Okay. And yeah. so, you did. Black people believe in democracy. We do. And we really do. one of these days, I would like to talk to you about blacks and, because you wanted to talk about, I remember you saying you wanted to talk about blacks and healthcare. And yeah, we can, yeah we'll schedule another. We'll make it like once a month or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want. And I'm happy to come on your podcast and, and whatever. But hey, uh, thanks a lot. And, um, just hang on the line for me for a second. Okay.